The scripture lesson this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the first chapter beginning at the 15th verse. Hear the word of God. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power." God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Oh God, may your spirit move in these ancient words and make them live in our lives. Help us to know what you are saying to us as your people. Enliven us with your presence. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, as we welcome the season of Easter in the church, we will keep asking, what does it mean to be resurrection people? I'd like to consider with you today a passage, the one that I just read from the letter to the Ephesians. In this passage of Scripture, the people of the church are told this by Paul, or most likely one of Paul's students. I pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. With your heart enlightened, being able to see the truth, you may know hope. Today we're going to talk about the relationship between truth and hope. Often in this world, problems are big, and it's easy to be dismayed by the truth. Often we are tempted to ignore the truth and to be people of hope, but to do so in a way that is naive and ignorant of reality. Choose your complicated issue. Criminal justice, political corruption, environmental protection, racism, voting rights, 
poverty, education reform, immigration, economic policy, the desire to care about any of these things, but the need to still do a good job of caring for your immediate needs, your family, your children, your aging parents, your spouse. You can't work on any of these things unless you have the spiritual strength to hold a tension between truth and hope and to work for something better one day at a time. That's what I believe today's scripture is telling us. A story from my own family. A few weeks ago, I had the occasion to watch the movie The Prince of Egypt with my children. This is Disney's adaptation of the Moses story, the Exodus story in the Bible. It's pretty well done. Kids learn the story of the bondage of the Hebrews under Pharaoh, the call of Moses at the burning bush, and the eventual liberation of the Hebrews as they pass through the parted waters of the sea. Their freedom comes as a direct result of plagues. In dramatic fashion, the waters of the Nile are turned to blood and there are locusts and there are gnats and there are frogs and ultimately the Passover and the death of firstborn Egyptian children, including the son of Pharaoh. This movie led to a number of good questions. You don't have to be a graduate student of theology in order to ask these questions. My seven- and eight-year-old children wanted to know, why would one people enslave another? Why do those awful plagues have to, have to happen in order for the Hebrews to gain their freedom? Why did God let it happen that way? Because I'm not only an outstanding theologian, but also an exemplary parent, I offered clear, age-appropriate answers to each one of those questions in 50 words or less. That's the best laugh I've had in a while. <laughs> of course, that's not the way that it happened. If you think I'm going to offer you a clear answer to any of those questions in the next 15 minutes, you need to lower your expectations. However, I do think that our faith tradition offers us some rich resources for thinking about really difficult problems. And today I'm going to talk about one of those strategies. It's a good week for talking about big questions. Today we're recognizing Earth Day in the church. The Bible tells us that human beings are called to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion over it. But if we don't care for God's creation, one day there will be little left to fill or subdue, much less enjoy. A huge trial concluded this week, but depending on who you talk to or what you watch or you read, it's hard to tell if the verdict was a vindication of a wonderful criminal justice system or the exception that proves the rule. It could be that some other personal grief or trauma in your life is obscuring both of these issues and everything else and that you are asking about something in your own life, why would God allow this to happen? What are we to think about these kinds of big questions? 
When my kids asked me about the prince of Egypt, I didn't have simple answers for them, but I didn't ignore their questions either. My basic feeling about it, which I tried to express to them, is that sometimes people do really bad things. Christians call these things evil or sin. And when genuine evil takes place, it cannot always be erased without other hard things taking place. The pharaoh in Egypt was so hungry for power that he made other people his slaves. He was so committed to hanging on to that power that he had to lose his own son before he could recognize his need to change. Did God orchestrate all of the steps in that story? Did God want it that way? I hope not. Some people think the story is literally true. Others think it is a myth meant to make an important point. Many think it's someplace in between. We'll find out in heaven, I suppose. What I do know is that in our own country, the end of slavery required profound suffering and loss of life. And the end of the Civil War was only the beginning of repairing the evils of slavery. So it seems like a true statement that repairing real evil often requires painful solutions. The conversation I had with my sons was much simpler than the conversations many fathers and sons were forced to have this week, particularly fathers uh, and mothers of brown and black boys and girls. In the aftermath of the Derek Chauvin trial this week, I read an excellent article by Esau McCulley. McCulley is a New Testament scholar, and he's a professor at Wheaton College. He's a black man and a father of four children. If you know anything about Wheaton College outside of Chicago, you can safely assume that he teaches to a politically diverse population of students. I'm often aware that you all get as much politics and punditry as you can stand elsewhere in the world, and that when you come here to church, you're looking for something else. So I appreciated that Macaulay took a theological approach as he wrote this week about what he says to his children and to students in his classroom. He wrote about how people of faith respond to difficult questions. I'm going to share with you a couple of paragraphs from his article. In my classroom, we wade into the troubled waters, he says. I let my students know that there is no escape from these issues. There is no place to hide. There is no world where they can live, learn, fall in and out of love other than the one they inhabit. A basic teaching of Christianity is that humans are capable of profound and confounding evil. That is not a truth that exists only outside of the students. It also exists within them. They must see the world for what it is. Then... They must get about the work of living in a world that too often devalues black and brown lives. There have been and will be time when that disregard will stun them to silence. 
In those moments, they may be able to lift only half-coherent prayers and laments to God. Macaulay continues, My children and the students committed to my care have to live in this world and be frustrated by it, but they do not have to accept it as unchangeable. They do not have to give way to apathy. They are free to weep and mourn as long as they need to do so, but they can also resist. They can plan, organize, protest, and march. They have to resist, not because any one event will bring the change that they seek. They must resist as a declaration of their worth and humanity. The resistance to injustice, then, isn't only for America. It is for their own souls. Esau Macaulay spoke to the tension between truth and hope. The need to see the world for what it is, but not to be dismayed. To live in hope and to believe that God is at work to bring about change. There are a lot of stories where the Bible makes reference to this balance between truth and hope. The Hebrews' exodus from Egypt is one of them. Do you remember how hard it was for the enslaved Hebrews to believe Moses when he said God would set them free? The truth of their suffering was so immense that hope was hard. We see that in our own world. Do you remember that even after Pharaoh sets them free and they begin their march out of Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind and sends the army to bring them back? Can you imagine how the Hebrews must have felt as they approached the Red Sea and suddenly they saw the army charging after them? Of course, their freedom was too good to be true. Even after God parts the sea and they escape to the promised land, they will find in countless ways that freedom is not easy. But they will have to learn that God has, in fact, delivered them and that they are called to a new way of life. Truth and hope are hard to hold together. Perhaps the most succinct naming of this in the Bible comes in today's scripture from the letter to the Ephesians. Paul is writing to the church about the resurrection, and he says, I pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know God, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. To have your eyes enlightened means to know the truth. People who know the truth are not fooling themselves by ignoring inconvenient or uncomfortable facts about the real world. They accept things for what they are. They acknowledge the truth and are willing to deal with it. And yet, the truth does not cause them to abandon hope. Even though they know the truth of sin and evil in the world, they are willing to acknowledge when good things take place. They are willing to long for something better. They are willing to rejoice when they see signs of hope. Faithful people hold truth and hope in tension this way because 
they've seen Jesus. Jesus is the one who came face to face with evil. Jesus is the one who knew the truth of betrayal and denial and rejection in response to all of the love he showed to the world. Jesus gave up his very own life. And when they killed him, they saw him rise again and keep on sharing the good news. The story of faith is to know the depth of evil in the world and still to be people of hope. This is what it means to be resurrection people. I suppose what I find most challenging about much of what I read these days is how often people, due to their political inclinations, are unwilling to hold truth and hope in tension. Either they are unwilling to acknowledge the truth and admit that there are deep structural problems in the world, or they're so steeped in dismay that they refuse to celebrate progress when it happens so that it can be built upon. Either they want to tell the story of the Exodus and leave out the plagues, or they've read the story, but they refuse to believe that God has the power to set people free. As faithful people, we must take up the challenge to do both. To hold truth in tension with hope. I see this all the time in the challenge of raising my children. I want them to grow up knowing the truth. Even though it is easy enough to go on living in this neighborhood and to shield my children from hardship, I want them to know the realities of the world. I want them to understand that evil and the need to repair it does not just exist in storybooks. It's the stuff of reality. And I want them to grow up as people of hope. I want them to rejoice in the gifts of this great country in which they live. I want them to inherit a tradition where regular people have the capacity to make the world better. I want them to believe that we can. There are a lot of ways of being church. Some people just want to study the Bible all by itself and forget about the troubles of the world. Others want us to find in Scripture the truth that the world is mired in sin and that we need to clothe ourselves in lament and despair. Still a third group prefer to skip over the plagues. They cannot stand to talk about the truth. They want to talk about Easter, but they want Easter without the cross. On various days, I have been all three of those people. Maybe you have been too. On my best days, I pray that God is shaping me into a fourth way. A way of living in tension between truth and hope. It is a resurrection way, a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we come to know God so that with the eyes of our hearts open, we may come to know the hope to which God has called us.
Thanks be to God. Amen.